This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 24. Hello friends, welcome back. This week I'm talking to an old friend of the show, as old as you can get when we're only in our second season, Coach Sass Petherick. You might remember her from the episode in season one where we really dug into self-doubt. Sass is a coach helping people, particularly women, struggling with self-doubt, particularly me because she coaches me and she is somebody who I have learned so much from both personally, professionally. She has a wise, wise head on her shoulders and even as we were recording our first episode for season one, I knew that I was going to have to have her back to talk about all of these issues some more. I called Sass up and asked about how we could all stop caring quite so much about what other people think of us. I think that's probably familiar to lots and lots of us. Maybe it holds us back from doing the things we want to do. Just that fear of how we're going to be perceived from the outside and whether we're going to be seen as likeable or not because of it. So I was kind of hoping that Sass would just cure me of that concern in a single conversation. But actually, her answer to my question was a lot more interesting and nuanced than you might expect. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Good morning, Sass. Good morning. Thank you for coming back on to Hashtag Authentic. I'm so excited to be here. It's one of my favourite, favourite places to chat. Well, it's always lovely to chat to you. I think we could do this pretty much every day if we had the chance. So in case anyone's not heard your previous episode of us or come across your work before, do you want to just give us a brief intro to what you do? Sure. Um, So I'm a coach and mentor for other coaches. And my work is really around the idea of helping people cultivate self-belief. So my MA was in coaching and mentoring. My dissertation was all about self-doubt and that has really shaped the work that I do. So I work mostly with women, but a few blokes sneak in around the edges and uh, I do one-to-one coaching. I've got group programs, workshops and retreats and I absolutely love what I do. It's so much better than what I used to do, which was management consulting and nearly killed me. (laughs) And I know firsthand that you are excellent at what you do because you coach me and if anyone hasn't heard the previous episode we kind of dug into the whole issue of self-doubt didn't we and where it comes from and kind of some strategies people can use so I will link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants to listen to that one as well but today I asked you back on really quite selfishly for an issue that I struggle with and I know lots and lots of the women I speak to struggle with as well and that is this obsessive worry about what everybody else thinks can you please teach me mm-hmm. how to stop worrying about what everyone else thinks uh no <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were gonna say uh, that <laughs> no because I think it's the wrong goal <laughs> okay so this is the thing I th- I think that it is so important to care about what other people think yes we're completely relational beings how other people view us how we relate to other people deeply matters because we're hardwired for connection. That's right. We don't we can't turn it off because we're not supposed to turn it off, right? Exactly. I mean I think 
love and belonging are the two universal human needs, right? And and how we relate to other people are key to both of those things. So there's absolutely nothing shameful or nothing that needs to be kind of changed about this caring about what other people think. So we can just kind of let ourselves off the hook <laughs> around that. I think wanting to be approved of is as inherent and natural to being human as breathing. That's good to know. But it does get in the way sometimes. It totally does. And I think this is the thing is it's like rather than sort of cutting this off, like feeling like it's, it's a thing that needs to end, where I see lots of the women I work with getting tripped up is when we start to believe that the acceptance of other people, the acceptance of everybody, particularly this kind of universal amorphous everybody. Mm. It's when we use that acceptance or, or rejection as a determining factor in our worth as human beings, that's when we get screwed by it. Uh-huh. Because presumably not everybody's judgment is a reliable indicator of how well we're doing. Exactly. Because some people are kind of stupid. Yeah, well, I think that is exactly it, is that we can kind of get caught up in thinking, if someone doesn't like me, there's something wrong with me, or I am somehow unlikable, unworthy of being liked. When actually, and I know for myself, whenever I sort of think, oh, I'm not feeling a connection with that person, it's usually because of where I'm at. Mm. Often it's a it's a disconnect with them, but it's more about my experience of them than who they are. That is so true. Like whenever I have an issue with somebody or something about what someone's doing really gets on my nerves, maybe at the time I don't see it that way, but later on I can really look at it and be like, oh, okay, that's because I have an issue with X or with why yeah yeah well and our culture is kind of and I'm a coach so I'm kind of in the self-help industry which I sort of choke a little bit every time I say that (laughs) but there is this kind of like we should just love everybody and love and light and all this kind of thing which I think is a is a fine idea but I'm of the school that you can you can love humanity but kind of detest a few humans (laughs) and that's okay you know that actually when we get more discerning about the people whose thoughts about us or or whose judgments, whose opinions really start to matter to us, when that becomes a discerning and intentional choice that's based on trust and love and acceptance and belonging, that's when you start to create more of a sense of Uh, solidity to your own worth, that it's actually based on the quality of the connections you have with the people rather than just, you know, everyone on social media. Right, because the internet is kind of a dangerous trap for this, where you can literally get a score for how likable you are or what you're saying are or what you're sharing is on a daily basis if you want. You don't even have to get out of bed before you get your score of likability for the day. Absolutely. You know, I watched on a couple of months ago, watched uh, one of Charlie Brooker's plays from his series. I can't remember what it's called. A Black Mirror. Black Mirror. And there's one in it where where it's a futuristic tale of what would happen if our likability score determined how we were, what resources we have access to. And it was so (laughs) chilling, right? Because this woman who's the character on it, uh, who's brilliant, is Dallas Howard. She she is like a 4.6, but she's invited to the wedding of some old high school friends who are nines and tens. And it's this whole thing around 
what happens to her. And every single interaction you get to rate and vote. Like Uber, but for the whole world. Yeah, but, <laughs> but for humans, like just generally, yeah. I watched this with my husband and we were both like, whoa, that is way too close to the bone. But I think there is a version of that that we kind of actively participate in if you're on social media, right? There is, And there are deeply useful reasons why social media companies have used things like likes and hearts to determine the popularity of, of our status updates, of our images, of what we choose to share. Because they're actually, you know, they're psychologically proven to be, it's like Pavlovian response. Mm. And anyone who ever, you remember Blackberries? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Some of, some of you may or may not remember Blackberries, but Blackberries used to be, they were appless phones. So they were kind of, everyone in the city had a Blackberry. But every time you got an email or a message on your Blackberry, there'd be a blinking red light. And it, it was actually, there was a study done, I can't remember who did it, but the, one of the UK universities looked at the stress response from red lights of BlackBerry users. It actually starts to kind of become a source of belonging, right? Because that red light means someone's contacting oh. you. And so it creates this whole culture, right, where, we've, where everyone who's got a BlackBerry has to respond straight away because there's a red light there. And it, we do the same kinds of things, right? So any of us who are on in a, in a creative sense on social media, when we're sharing our, our stuff, we watch for those likes, for those updates, for the notifications that say, you know, so many people have clicked on whatever you've shared. Right. Comes this kind of, we can choose to make that mean that we are worthy, that what we have shared has a direct implication for how much we matter as a human being. And I know that all of us listening are going, I do that, but it's crazy, right? <laughs> and I totally do it too. I had to switch yeah. off notifications on my iPhone because it becomes kind of addictive. Absolutely. And you can't get anything done because you're constantly like, oh, another like, oh, another retweet. Yeah, we're checking, we're checking. And, and I think that it's very smart of social media companies to do this because it keeps us connected not to each other, but to the app, right? To the social media page or site. And that's what they want. They don't actually, I think, really care that much about the relationships we have between us because they are profit-driven companies. Yeah. They're interested in us being connected to the app. And so when we start to sort of see how we get, and this is just one example, right, of how we can literally reach everybody who's on that social media app. This shows you how we're kind of programmed to want that love and belonging. And this is just one mechanism that we are manipulated into, into demonstrating that to each other. But it's really important to remember that A, the companies that run the social media sites aren't really that bothered about your experience of how you feel about that. And that's, you know, demonstrated in, you know, just how much stress we know young people are under and the whole compare and despair of social media and bullying that's on social media. Mm -hmm. There is a sense that these sites are almost morally neutral, right? They just provide a platform. Humans get to decide how they're going to behave on it. Yeah. But it's really important to recognize that, A, that's the company that is providing this mechanism for us to connect, but also it requires nothing of someone to hit like. like there, <laughs> there's, there's actually no love and belonging demonstrated by that. Zero investment. Zero investment. So true. And I don't know how many of us, I do this sometimes, where I think, 
Oh God, I, I kind of am connected to you. I don't really know you or particularly like you, but I feel like I haven't done anything to demonstrate that I'm still here. So I'm going to click like. <laughs> right Now I may be overthinking it. Maybe other people don't do that. But I will quite, not often, but I do notice that if I get kind of sucked into the whole Instagram, Facebook game, that I'll I'll kind of go through and just like a whole lot of stuff, kind of just to be like, feel like I'm having some sort of connection with people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very relatable. But it doesn't really require anything. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. I mean, a comment is a slightly bigger investment in terms of a couple of seconds of your time. Yeah. A like is yeah. it's almost like a reflex action. You don't even have to think about how to do it. It, it is. And, and I guess, you know, and this is nothing against social media because I think there are amazing connections that can be made through the different mechanisms we have available now. I'm a huge, huge fan of technology. But I guess it just that right now, for the first time in human history, we have this these tools available to us that I think we they are psychologically programmed to manipulate our greatest needs for love and belonging. And sometimes most of us, and, and I'm absolutely part of this, you know, we, we kind of unconsciously play the game. And I think this can lead us down that path where, oh my God, I'm so wedded to what people think of my image or my status update, my tweet, when actually, you know, these are these tiny little slivers of our lives. They're not really... There's no real depth, you know, that we can communicate and we can often mistranslate that connection online for intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're actually craving. It's so interesting. One thing that's pinging in my head as you're saying all of this is obviously the algorithms being introduced to social media, which I've kind of added an extra level of artifice to those relationships because now we're no longer really even in control of who our relationships are with we see the people we're shown yes and they're kind of these relationships are foisted upon us like you will see this person every day until you feel like you have a relationship with them exactly and the emotional response that people have had especially on Instagram to losing that control that we had to an extent over who we saw and when we saw them it kind of makes sense in this context because actually we are all very emotionally invested and most people have seen some sort of decline in their level of engagement or in their level of kind of meaningful relationships through social media since the algorithms have come in and superficially it seems really trivial like oh you've got fewer likes big deal like this is not the end of the world but on a really fundamental level what we're saying is we feel less validated we feel less worthy as human beings since they've changed this algorithm and of course that's horribly uncomfortable it well it hurts yeah right it's there's a genuine feeling of disappointment and hurt and like and I whenever I feel those feelings my initial response is always have I done something wrong yes right and and you know I think these are the the things that we just need to kind of be aware of and you know someone who I adore who's on uh, social media and I'm sure lots of people listening will know is Alison Sadler who runs the people shop in Birmingham and she's just just a right on lady I just really love her energy and she kind of was like I have seen my last peony right (laughs) I'm gonna free up my Instagram and she created this challenge where she just invited people to kind of post and just post for the love of sharing and for connection and it's these kinds of responses that actually where we just share that vulnerability and say actually this algorithm thing is confusing and it's changing how I'm relating to people and to to what I'm sharing to my creativity to even to my business for those of us who are self-employed 
that, you know, when we turn around and say, actually, I'm going to take some control back here. I'm going to decide how I show up and I'm going to do it on my terms and I'm going to participate at a level that feels good and and kind of fulfilling to me. It's like we change the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Even if that is, you know, limited because obviously, you know, we're not in charge of how that algorithm works or how that app presents information to us. But I think just by recognizing that we're always in choice about how we respond to that, um, it can just really help to kind of dilute some of that hurt and disappointment. It's a bit like when you're waiting for a boy to text back all the time and you're miserable because he never does. And then you go, oh, hang on. But maybe if I just don't rush to text back and spend all my time thinking about him and actually just get on with my life, then nothing changes. He's not going to text me anymore frequently, but I'm not going to worry about it anymore. You know, as someone who spent most of her 20s (laughs) waiting for boys to text her back... (laughs) I wholeheartedly endorse that approach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I guess I think this is the thing is that even for those of us, and I'm not really counting myself in this category, but, but perhaps for you, Sarah, like you've got legions of followers, right? But I bet, and I, I'd place a pretty high bet on this, that you have probably less than half a dozen people that you would actually call on regardless of the circumstances. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's true for all of us. And I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, we're all kind of, for those of us who are online and who are connecting in that way and sharing in that way, you know, we, we are to an extent playing a game that we're not in charge of the rules of. But actually for our deep enriching relationships, the ones that really matter, pretty much every human has less than half a dozen people. Most of us have maybe two or three, that w- that we really deeply trust and connect with. And actually, when we're thinking about the question of, you know, how do I stop caring about what other people think? I think it's those people that actually we need to treasure and cherish those relationships. They're the people that we really need to care about what they think, invest our energy in that. And then we think about the kind of tree stump analogy, right, where the rings get further and further out from the mm. centre, that there'll be people that you just, you really care about, you meet, you've perhaps shared moments with or, or you're connected to and you just think, I really like that person. But they may not be in your inner circle and that's okay. And there'll be other people who are further out and further out and further out. And there are some people, and, and I wrote a blog post about this, about the moon people, right? If you think about your kind of your inner circle as the people that are in your house or on the front porch of your house, uh-huh. there are some people that should that are in the front garden, others are in the street. There are some people that should just be on the bloody moon, <laughs> right? That, that, that their opinion does not warrant your energy. Yes. And, and these are often the people that are the ones that are kind of the, the energy vampires. You know, they just suck the joy right out of your life. That Those are the folks that require our, they do require our energy, but our energy goes into creating some healthy boundaries around how we engage with them. And I guess this goes back to the thing you said earlier about the way they feel about us is actually all about them and yeah. the way they engage with us. Yes. I've certainly had experiences of these types of people where it's all their issues. And actually, like, I now look at the kind of communication I get from people like this and think, if you knew how much you were telling me about yourself yeah. by putting that out there and how, about all the things that you're worried about, I don't think you would you would post that publicly. Absolutely. And I and I think it's so helpful to recognise that it's kind of about us, but it's it's mostly nothing to do with us. Yeah. 
yeah. and and I think that this is kind of proven if you flip it and you think about the people that you would contact when something absolutely brilliant happens to you right because actually you know when you do get the book deal or you're featured your jewelry is featured in Oprah's favorite things or a magazine wants to interview you there's almost this kind of rush of excitement and joy and it's the people you know that you can tell that news to and they are going to be delighted for you. They're yes. not going to make it mean anything about them or make you feel separate from them in any way because suddenly something great's happened to you. They're the people you have that connection with, that real deep connection, that intimate connection that's based on trust. And they're sorted enough themselves to yeah. to see you for who you are, I suppose, as well as a factor in that. Yeah, and, and trust that good news can often, for lots of people, be just as threatening to as bad news. Some of us are just way more comfortable when bad stuff happens to people. That's a whole separate issue that we could dig into. I yeah. <laughs> I'm quite fascinated. But, it, but, but it plays into this idea of when we care about what people think, most of us, it's because this really huge threat is to our well-being, to our kind of survival is this threat is deeply rooted in the idea that we could be separate or seen as separate. So anything that creates that separation is to be concerned about. I was speaking to Tara Moore for another episode of the podcast and she made a really nice point which was to say that as women kind of not that long ago in recent history our actual survival really did depend on fitting in because we had no financial independence we had no (laughs) no way of kind of just setting off on our own if we didn't fit in with our family if we didn't make like our husband approve of us if we didn't make our wider community approve of us and and risked rejection Mm -hmm. then that was a very real threat to our survival yes and and that's only you only need to go back kind of 50 100 150 years so it's it's still pretty new yeah. that actually this sense of connection is less vital for our well-being i suppose well and and we are programmed by our culture to the one of the most important character traits a woman can have is likability yes Right. So it is, we get all these messages and it's modeled for us by other women. Likeability is one of the most important things you you can demonstrate. And there are some really great reasons for that. But it's when we want to be liked by everybody, that's when we actually start to compromise on who we are and kind of feel like we're adapting ourselves all the time to fit in. And that's exhausting. So exhausting. And also ends up kind of you lose your sense of self, you lose any kind of unique quality to what you do and who you are. Everything becomes very bland, very generic. Yes. And and I think, I mean, I think Tara is absolutely right. She's, she's a wise soul and indigenous cultures will often talk about the rule of seven generations, that it takes seven generations for us to really change our culture. And so if you think back seven generations, we, women were being burned at the stake, right? For being different, unlikable, outside of the norm. So I remember my mum and my gran being very invested in me keeping myself nice. Yeah, Whenever I hear that phrase, and my gran was from the northeast of England, you know, and I can hear her accent just saying, you keep yourself nice, sass, you know, and it's this very much like, what I translated that to mean was don't be too loud, don't be too big, don't be too much, stop talking, stop knowing things, stop arguing. And it became a way of keeping me 
are quite contained. So as soon as I had a little bit of freedom, all of that just came rushing out. <laughs> so she kind of created a monster, but, you know, it's okay. I'll just, I've reached a balance now. <laughs> There's no monster. Yeah. <laughs> But I, but I guess it's it's all tied to this this need to be included and to be accepted, and you know I see a lot of this in the women that I coach with. I wonder if it's helpful to kind of talk a little bit about what you might recognise in yourself, the kinds of things you might recognise in yourself to sort of perhaps know that this is something that you're doing is is kind of adapting yourself to try and fit in with other people. Yeah, because sometimes it's a very subconscious process. Yeah. So here's some things I see. I see women who are incredibly adept at taking care of everyone else's needs and the idea of asking for help makes them want to hurt themselves. <laughs> right? So so we're very very good at taking care of everyone else. But when it comes to saying, actually, I'm not coping with this or I need help with this, we would rather suffer than ask for help. That sounds familiar. There's also the sense that we need to protect ourselves in any kind of relationship, right? So the opposite, it's not the opposite, but kind of at the other end of the spectrum, there is this kind of emotional armor that we can wear because perhaps we have been rejected before or we've learned through our families of origin or through early formative relationships that actually people can't be trusted. And so we learn to protect ourselves in relationships and become quite, you know, our, our boundaries are actually really high walls. Mm. And so we filter everything through that. Exactly. And it's this kind of feeling constantly braced for attack, for threat, for, for someone to judge us or criticize us. And for anyone who's grown up in a family where, you know, the way that everyone relates to each other is through being criticised, <laughs> then you become so adept at that. You can smell it a mile away. For years, I had a real habit of predicting what criticisms people might throw at me and saying them first so that yeah. people would be like, oh, at least she knows that she's annoying or at least she knows she's too loud, which like as a, as a short term mechanism worked quite well, but long term was just terrible for my self-esteem. So I definitely relate to that one. Well, and that's one of the symptoms of it, right, is that rush to self-deprecate. Yes. It's like a way, it's kind of a, it's your sword, you know, if you're <laughs> emotionally armoured up, self-deprecation becomes a great weapon because you get in there first before anyone can hurt you. Yeah. But I tell you what, we listen to the voice we have in our own minds more than anyone else. Yes. So how we talk about ourselves to ourselves really matters. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. You may also find that there may be a belief that you have to work really, really hard to be accepted, right? To be liked. Mm. So you might find that you're, you take on, and I see this with women who do things like they are the, the organizer of, of every social event, right? So they become the kind of the host and the organizer and the manager of all dinner parties, holidays, any kind of play date, get together, <laughs> They're the ones that are always at the center of that. And it's this kind of thing that I sort of see that part of that in a healthy form, it's like, I just love having people around me and I'm happy to organize it because that feels fulfilling. In a less healthy form, it can be, unless I am offering you a reason to connect with me, I don't think you will. Right. And a way to ensure you're always involved. Exactly. And and sometimes it can be, I know for myself, I often would did this in, a, in previous relationships where at the time... I was earning a lot of money so I would often do things like oh, I'll, I'll pay for dinner or I'll get lunch and I would say it as a way of no it's fine you know I, I can afford this and it's not a big deal but I think that 
if I'm really honest, it was a way of ensuring that there was a dependency, uh, right? Because it, it became a way of kind of ensuring that people needed me on some level, even though it was a really icky way of being needed. Sort of bribing people to be your friend. Kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure you didn't need to do. And it's also, I think, a way of sort of showing off a little bit. I think I was kind of like, yeah, look, I am successful. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, inside, it's like the facade is a huge, you know, <laughs> there's this crumbling ruin behind it. But at the time, I think it was it was also a way of keeping up the pretense. But those relationships were never really built on much more than that. So it was pretty, you know, it was pretty easy to see through. Yeah. But that idea that you have to work really hard to earn that connection can be quite debilitating. And I see it a lot, particularly if with mums who are organising play dates or birthday parties, and there's this kind of like, how Pinterest ready can this be, <laughs> you know? And there's gift bags and cakes and entertainment. Oh, and yeah. I just think, oh my God, you know, like, who's this for? And, and of course, there are healthy ways where people just love, genuinely enjoy all of that. So we're not saying that... I think that's the key, is how fulfilling and excited are you about this yeah and how if it's just stress because I've seen that as well those those people who feel they have to do it in fact I've probably been that person feel they have to do it but it's just a nightmare from start to finish exactly to keep up appearances and to meet certain standards well and I think that's the thing is if it's exciting and fulfilling it's going to feel so different to if it's I've got to do this because that's what other people will expect yeah and how do we know what other people will expect truly no idea we have no idea. We can never know. This is the secret to humanity. We're all just making it up as we go along. <laughs> right? None of us know the answer for anyone else. It's true. And I, I struggle with this because I've talked to you about this before, actually, that years ago when I had some CBT and we kind of looked at all those distorted thinking patterns that different people have. I'll link to that in the show notes, actually, for anyone who's not come across it before, because it's a, a useful kind of list to read through. Mm -hmm. But one of the ones that really kind of kept snagging with me was this mind reading, this idea that I think I know what other people are thinking. Yes. And it's tricky for me because a lot of the time I kind of do. Like, I have a lot of empathy. I have a lot of kind of self-awareness. And so I'm sure you're the same, Sass, that a certain level of understanding how humans work means that you can often interpret people just from their body language, mm -hmm. just from the way they're kind of sitting in their chair. You know an awful lot about their state of mind. Yeah. But I think the danger is when we over-extrapolate that to believing we know what everyone expects of us or we know what everybody wants from us. Well, exactly. And, and I think that's one of the other symptoms of this is that you start to hold yourself back because you're worried about what other people think. Mm. Right. So you might hold yourself back from saying something, from putting your creativity in the world, from just expressing yourself in a way that feels good to you because you are mind reading or, or attempting to mind read. And that is exhausting. And it's never right because we can never really know what another person's no. experience is. But what happens is that we then kind of we do what you know, my grand taught me to do is we contain ourselves in an effort to, to never be offensive. And we see this kind of play out online, I suppose, in the sense that kind of going back to Alison's project, that Instagram becomes a very repetitive series of things that are the same because yeah. it does well. It's nice. It's likable. It's not offensive. It's not dislikable by any single group of people or 
I mean, I'm not suggesting that people should be putting offensive content on Instagram, to be clear, but, you know, just something that's some people's cup of tea and really isn't other people's. We've really lost that on Instagram. I think it's become much yeah. more kind of streamlined. Yeah, it's it's kind of anodyne. Yes. And, and a bit homogenous yeah. sometimes. Someone who I think is a couple of lads who I believe are kind of human marmite. You either kind of love them or hate them. Frankie Boyle, who's a Scottish comedian, mm-hmm. and Russell Brand, who mm-hmm. most people will know. Frankie Boyle is known as one of the the kind of the most offensive man in Britain. I actually think he is one of the smartest comedians I've ever heard. And I know he's he really is genuine human marmite. But he had an incredibly interesting conversation with Russell Brand on Russell Brand's new podcast. And they were talking about this idea that, you know, what's the alternative? If you want to be liked, and I thought this was quite interesting as two men who are quite well known, having quite a thoughtful conversation about if you are aiming to be accepted by the mainstream, then you have to homogenize yourself. And it, and then at what point are you yourself? Yes. Right. And so they've both kind of rejected that. I think they both do that very well. They, they're both very much themselves. And my sense is that they've actually decided that the price we have to pay for being liked by the mainstream is too high for their creative outlets. And I found that really, really interesting when you think about the kind of spectrum that's at play for most of us, where we might sort of be concerned about being liked by someone at work or someone in our family or feel like every conversation with one specific person is a little tense or difficult to the kind of other end of the spectrum where there is a sort of sense of social anxiety or if you're just among the humans, right? <laughs> there is, it's, it's a kind of almost amorphous anxiety that somewhere in between that most of us kind of sit and the root of all of that is about not trusting ourselves, right? We're essentially, when we're in that place of, I can't have this conversation with this person or I don't want to be among the humans because of that feeling of unworthiness or that I won't fit in, I'll be judged, I'll be criticized, what if they don't like me? All of those thoughts and craziness that goes on. That the root of all of that is about not trusting ourselves, not trusting that that we'll be okay. There'll be a mixed response to everything we do. When we are homogenizing ourselves, trying to be likable, trying to fit in in every circumstance, where you kind of lose track of who you are in all of that. What we're doing is kind of outsourcing our self-worth to other people. Yes. Right. It means that our worthiness, our sense of who we actually are, becomes a crowdsourcing activity. Which is quite seductive. It, well, it's incredibly seductive if the feedback is positive. Yes. And, you know, it's because my work is all about self-doubt. So that whole idea that we doubt our very selves, right, the, the only thing we really actually ever have, <sighs> when we have doubt about that, it can undermine everything, every interaction, every step we take towards our dreams and desires and goals, every time we want to make something, do something. When we're doubting our very selves, it's a huge place of mistrust of ourselves. And when we place that trust in someone else instead, then exactly. that changes all of those, the way we do all of those things, because we're no longer doing it for our true self, we're doing it for projected other. Exactly, because we are saying kind of indiscriminately and disproportionately, whatever you think of me, 
that will be how I feel about myself. Yeah. And we are often employing the least qualified people in the world to do that, to decide who we are and what our worth is. Yes, why do we do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> why are we doing well, that? Well, most of us had a pretty mixed bag when it came to learning how to be human, mm. right? Learning how to relate to other people, learning how to take care of our own needs and navigate the needs of other people within that. Like I, I have heard rumors that there are people that grew up in families that were incredibly healthy and everyone took responsibility for their own energy and <laughs> moods. No. <laughs> um, you know, that they were emotionally intelligent and aware and, you know, everything was talked through. I, I, it feels like a kind of Disney movie to me. <laughs> I've never met these people. <laughs> So most of us get this kind of mixed bag idea of how we relate to other people, of what we should allow other people to influence us, how, how we allow other people to influence us, how we take care of ourselves in that. And, you know, because our parents were raised by the keep yourself nice generation, yeah, the post-war generation who were terrified of bad things happening and had seen bad things happen and so it was kind of a you know safety was really really important but for whatever reason we get these blueprints in our childhood around what it means to belong and whatever that blueprint looks like will echo through all of our subsequent relationships until we become aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it and that we're in choice and then we can give the power of kind of helping us determine our worth to people who deserve it exactly well i think this is the thing is we can we it can sometimes feel like are we just screwed both ways yeah. right you either have this excessive emphasis on what other people think which can undercut your confidence and thwart creativity kind of disassociate from your own stirrings and expressions and the ways you see the world so there's that's when you're you've got this emphasis on what other people think or the other way is you stop caring about what everyone thinks and kind of end up in this emotionally armored lonely separate place yeah I've, tr I've tried both <laughs> <laughs> do you recommend either I, I think there's a third way right <laughs> and and I've come to see this as more of a dance right it's between me and another between the needs of the people in my life and my own values and longings and goals and dreams so it's a dance between what I need and want and and need to express and what the needs and wants and expressions of the world are. So I don't create the work I do to be liked by people. But is it important that people like me? Of course. Like I want people to like me and I want to like them. And your work would not resonate if it wasn't likable by anybody. Exactly. But am I willing to be provocative to say the things that are perhaps contrary to the mainstream in order to move and impact and create a little bit of opening for a new way of thinking about yourself to happen absolutely mm. right and and this is the thing is my work can, is incredibly important to me but it can only survive if dear listener you find it helpful right so i'm kind of in this dance of creating and thinking and understanding things tying things together and then having that received so i'm constantly learning and growing and sharing so that other people can do the same so so absolutely i want to create work that delights people and challenges people and helps them to overcome self-doubt, to cultivate self-belief, but it's not for everybody. And am I afraid of being rejected or ostracized or left out or inadequate, judged? Of course. 
does criticism hurt? Of course. But what I found hurts more is to deny who I am and what I have to offer. Yeah. Right. And so what it means is that we take risks. And I think that the thing that I have have found, and I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of self-doubt, is that it often isn't actually what people think that scares us because we can't ever really know that. It's our fear of what we think people think. Okay, talk me through that one. So we fear what we think people think. Interesting. We take our greatest fears and doubts and worries and anxieties, like the worst stories we have about ourselves. What you were saying earlier about, I'm going to say what I think you think about me mm. to protect myself. We'll do things like decide on a worst case scenario. I'm going to post this Instagram photo. No one's going to like it. <laughs> or I'm going to post this Instagram photo and I'm, I'm waiting for three minutes, no likes. Ten minutes, three likes. Oh my God, should I delete it? No one likes this, right? But actually, it's our fear of what people are thinking. We assume that we know that people are scrolling through, looking at that image and thinking, oh, that's shit. It's awful. I'm not going to like that. Or, oh, my God, she's posted that again. More bloody flowers, right? <laughs> and we can never, ever know what's going on. We can never really know what actually people are thinking or what their experiences are but once we've taken that risk once we've taken that risk of just posting the thing and carrying on posting right because this is about a body of work not just one instance the responses we get are really as dramatic or as negative as we imagine this is true and actually any response can be great feedback in fact i think it's probably true for most of us that the times you put something out that feels scary or feels really vulnerable, those blog posts that you hesitate to hit publish on, those are the ones that get the most response and kind of you get the most real response from people on those ones because you've kind of put your true self out there. Exactly. And, and I think it's that there is a kind of line, right, of am I sharing this because I care about what people think and I want them to like me because I'm posting this? Or am I just putting something out there because this feels like something I want to share and I'm unattached to how it's received or, you know, pretty unattached to how it's received? And that's the secret, right? Getting to that place yeah. is the answer. Because yeah. I know lots of people, and I've definitely been guilty of this, will post something they're quite happy with. And then if it doesn't get the response they anticipated, suddenly totally change their opinion about their own work. Yes. Whether that's a photograph or a piece of writing or something they've made or whatever else. But if it doesn't do well in this crazy rating system, internet world, suddenly that's enough for us to go, oh, actually, no, I was wrong. And this is crap. Yeah. So it's breaking that cycle, isn't it, where we believe in what we, we know about our own work enough that it doesn't matter what other people say. Well, and it, and I think it's this thing of understanding that everyone is imperfect and can we just tolerate some of that? Can we allow ourselves to learn as we go? Because we're all in this new world learning in public. Yes. Right? We're, we're no longer you know spending t sort of you know a few years getting our ideas all in, on you know, in a, in a good place and then saying, here's my body of work, right? We're doing it as we go. And the more kind of leeway we can give each other, the more kind of vulnerable we allow each other to be. I was reading a study online this week, actually, about somewhere in America and it was an art degree. And the professor gave half of the class, like a period of time, like six months, 
to create one piece of work, the best piece of work that they could create. And then the other half of the class, they had the same six months to create as much work as they could possibly create. And at the end of the six months, they graded like the final piece that each one got to submit. And the work from the ones who had created way more was like a whole lot better. And it did a yeah. whole lot better in the grading system. And of course, because the, the point of that is that there's no shortcut. Like it's not about the harder you work, the better it'll get. You just have to go through that process. And creativity isn't something you can just teach. It's something you have to teach yourself and work through and keep working at and make mistakes and do good versions and bad versions and keep throwing them out there absolutely because no one has made the thing you're making it's never been done before so there's no right way to do this right it's just about doing it and I think this is the thing that is really the insidious part of worrying what everybody else thinks is that it stops us from creating in whatever shape or form that our art, our expression takes, be it, you know, a writing political polemics or creating beautiful ceramics. These are the ways that we express ourselves. And when we are worried about how that's going to be received, or we try to get into the heads of anyone who's going to be on the receiving end of it, we start to kind of betray our inner creative spark. And then the work ends up being something different to what it should have been and would have been. Yeah. And it can be, I think, it, one of the hardest things to do when we're creating, we almost need to consciously separate from other people so that we can create the thing and then share it with the people. And see it as almost two separate steps yeah. of a process. Yeah. It's when we muddy the waters by thinking about sharing the thing with other people <laughs> that will then start to influence what we're creating. I definitely still fall into that trap. So I guess this is the thing, it's the dance, isn't it? Some, and some days yeah. you're going to miss a step and some days you're going to nail it and do the lift. Exactly. And, you know, for anyone who has seen Dirty Dancing, you know <laughs> Everyone. the lift takes time to perfect, you know. Yeah. You've got to spend an awful lot of time with Patrick Swayze in a lake, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I guess this is the thing is that we none of us have made something that is perfect you know and I think that that this becomes the kind of the way that this idea that if I'm worrying about what people think I've got to produce something that's as close to perfect as I can make it so that I'll never have to deal with conflict yeah. I'll never have to deal with people's criticism and actually risking that being willing to risk that is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself it's incredibly freeing a story I think I told you this the other day that my daughter Orla so she's four was making up stories the other day in bed the most amazing stories I don't know where these were coming from and they were just beautiful I could have cried and I said to her oh when you grow up you could write books you could write stories because these are brilliant you could be a writer and she thought about it and she said I've got an even better idea mommy I could be the lady at the library who reads the books and my first instinct was that is not a better idea I've done that job like I'd much rather be a writer than the lady at the library reading books and then I thought no actually this is this is about me telling her what I want her to be and trying to squeeze her creativity into the box that I think it should go into and so I managed to catch myself and just be like oh yeah that is a great idea as well you'd be brilliant at that and just stick to that and I guess it's about being that kind to ourselves as well yeah absolutely I mean can you imagine I mean, and I think this is the thing about the seven generation idea is that we might just skip one. We might hurry that all up as we all become just so much more aware of how, how we influence what we pass on to our kids and to the people in our lives. Yeah. 
that if we can demonstrate how we, again, how we speak to ourselves, that's the voice we listen to the most. If we can turn that into a kind voice, one that says, go do it. That sounds like a great idea. Just try it out. What is the worst that can happen? It's okay. You don't have to be everybody's cup of tea. You have these people in your life that love you, accept you, want you, adore you. You They are your oxygen for your creativity. We could change the world. This is why I'm so, and I say this on my site, I'm unconditionally committed to helping people develop self-belief. Because I believe that this is the way we do change the world. If we're all kind of okay with not only our own experience of of what we create and who we are, if we can liberate ourselves from the fear of judgment, we also stop judging each other, Mm. right? And you start to recognize that it's just all about resonance, you know, and that's entirely subjective. Whatever people resonate with in what you do or say or create and share, that's based on where they are. And you don't have to take care of them. You just carry on doing your thing. Yes. Yes, everyone else's reactions are not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to do our work and put it out there. Exactly. And just keep going. I love it. Sass, where else can people find your wisdom and your work and your wonderfulness? <laughs> so you can head over to sasspetherick.com. I've got a new program coming out. It's the second time around for your self-belief map. We ran this earlier in the year and it was just the best fun. So if people want to explore how to navigate through their self-doubt in a really supportive way, it's quite deep and rich and I'm super proud of this program. So if that resonates with you, head on over to sasspetherick.com and you'll see that off the homepage. That's an online one, isn't it? So people can do that from anywhere. It is, yep. And there's lots of contact with me. So it's not like a self-paced thing. It's There's lots of kind of live coaching that goes on there too. And I also, having been inspired by you, Sarah, I'm uh, releasing Courage and Spice, which is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. Hooray! Which by the time this episode goes out, will will be out in the world. But if people want to listen into some conversations about all things self-doubt, then that is your source. Go go check it out. So courageandspice.com, which you can also access off my main site. And I will link to, of course, all of these things in the show notes. I love that it's for humans with self-doubt because that's all humans, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Apart from psychopaths. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. That was super valuable. And I'm sure everyone's going to be feeling like they've had a warm hug from you right now. Oh, my pleasure. That's my my favourite thing. You can get show notes for everything we talked about today at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 24. I'm also going to link to Sass's awesome new podcast, which is now live, Courage and Spice. You can look it up in your podcast app, but I'll link to it in the show notes as well. And for anyone who's not caught it before, the previous episode where Sass and I talk about self-doubt and the people we have in our heads telling us what to do and why you really need someone like Luke Skywalker. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back with a new episode next Wednesday. Have a great week. Bye.